Well, our New Testament reading picks up um, right where our New Testament reading from last week left off, and that is uh, the Apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, the day when God pours out His Holy Spirit on His church. Uh, But our emphasis is not so much on Pentecost, but what Peter says about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications that His resurrection has for us. So let me read Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 41. Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful Sunday morning. We thank you for keeping us safe through storms. And we ask now that you would speak to us by your spirit. Um, We ask that you would dig out for us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see the risen Christ, and that you would give us faith in him, that you would give us hope in him. We pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the nightly routine at our house uh, is probably not all that different from the nightly routine at a number of your houses. Uh, That is, we have dinner, and after we have dinner, our kids will finish up homework if they haven't done that, and then they will get a shower. Uh, What may be unique to us, certainly we're not the only ones, but we then have the bedtime snack. And I don't know how or why we started the bedtime snack, but we are completely locked in. And that's usually a bowl of cereal, uh, some graham crackers, and milk. And then we rush our kids off to brush their teeth and get in bed. Well, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, my son, Cannon, uh, got up. He'd been put in bed, and he comes to me, and he says, Dad, my tummy hurts. And I say, oh, buddy, that's awful. Let's get you some gas medicine, and let's uh, give you a hug, and we're going to put you right right back in the old bed there. And that works. But then the next night, he gets up and he says, Daddy, my tummy hurts. And I say, oh, buddy, two nights in a row. That's awful. Here's some gas medicine. Let's get you right back in bed. And then the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And if you're like me, then you know exactly what's happening. And so I tell him, I said, buddy, I know exactly what's happening. You got a little bit of attention and a hug after you were supposed to be in bed. And that's fun and all, but your job is to stay in bed at this point. And it just turned into the battle that I could not win. Every single night he gets up, my tummy hurts. 
And this continued until we had the realization that he was lactose intolerant. So every night in our bedtime snack, we're giving him milk, and then we're putting him in bed, and then his stomach starts to turn on itself. And we realized this when we finally gave him some lactate, some lactose-free milk, and we put him to bed, and he stayed in bed, which realized, which, which made me realize that every single time I had told him, I know what you're doing, I was wrong, and I felt awful. I was mortified because I had doubled down on being right. I was sure that I was right instead of giving him compassion, and I was wrong, and I felt awful. There's no way around this. I was wrong. Now, imagine if Cannon had the will. Well, he probably has the will, but if he had the ability on one of those nights to say, because you had no compassion on my tummy, now your tummy's going to hurt forever. You know, like, ah. That's sort of what's happening in our passage, right? That's sort of the perspective the hearers are hearing. We're picking up where we left off. Peter's preaching about the death and the resurrection of our Lord and how wrong his audience had been when Jesus had walked in their midst. He is correcting what they thought they were sure, what they thought they knew they were certain. He says, you were certain, but you were wrong. And the context that we have from last week is a little bit helpful. Last week we saw in verse 22, Peter says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God, proven to you by God that God was at work through him in your midst, but you crucified him. But when you crucified him, he was raised in glory on the third day. And he appeals to the Old Testament, Psalm 16. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And he tells us this was never about David. David, without Jesus being the Holy One, would have been left in corruption. But Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the Righteous One. And he says in verse 31, David saw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is the Christ. David died. David stayed in the ground. But the Christ has been raised in glory. Now, it's important to recap that idea because now Peter's going to build on it. The one you were wrong about, he was the Christ, and he's alive. And now he quotes from another psalm, and you get the idea that the entire book of Psalms is about Jesus, maybe even the whole Bible. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But David didn't ascend to the right hand of God the Father. It was Jesus. It was the Messiah. The Christ ascends to the right hand of God. The Lord said to my Lord, he is the Lord. Now I want you to know for certain Peter is saying, the one whom you were wrong about, the one whom you crucified, is the Messiah. You killed him, but God made him both Lord and Christ. What's his angle? He wants them to have complete confidence in what is true. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And he's using two psalms to make one point. Do you see it? Last week, you will not let your Holy One be abandoned. You will not let Him see corruption. He's the Christ. He is alive. And this week, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until He makes His enemies his footstool. 
Peter says, the Lord that David is talking about is Jesus. And he's going to make his enemies his footstools. Those who are his enemies, he will put his feet on. Now imagine, if you're listening to this, and Peter's just said, and you crucified him. Oof, let let me guess. Crucifying him makes us his enemies. Peter says in verse 36, you can know for certain the Lord you crucified is alive. He is the Christ. He is both Lord, who will get even with his enemies, and he is Christ. He has been raised to new life. You can bank on it. You can be certain of this. You crucified him. In other words, before God, you are guilty. And we read in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? Now, it's important for us to note that people weren't just wrong about Jesus then. Even now, we, we miss Jesus. And how do, we, how do we miss Jesus? The most obvious way is to reject him outright, to say, well, he's not the Lord. He's not the Christ. When Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And to go through Jesus is to confess that he is the Lord before whom we should bow, and he is the Christ who is raised in glory. But it's also possible for us to miss him in more subtle ways, isn't it? Because all of us know what it is to have rival lords, to have rival kings in our lives. Maybe while we talk about Jesus as the Lord. But it might be really politics that we bow before. It might be politics that we look to save us. Or it might be our bank account. Or it might be the search of power. And this season has really been pretty eye-opening in exposing the things that we look to to save us and give us identity. You see, it's the Christ who is the Lord. He is the true king. It's not our politics. It's not our bank account. It's not even our freedom. And you see, because Jesus is the Lord... He can actually begin to put his finger on our hearts and poke at what our would-be rivals to him are. He can put his finger on how we approach politics and say, you're putting too much emphasis on this. He can poke on our hearts and say, your wallet belongs to me as well. It is not your Lord. I am your Lord. He can poke around on our freedom and say, you're actually supposed to be giving that up in in the pursuit of loving me and your neighbor as yourself. You see, when Jesus is your Lord, every other would-be Lord is malleable in his hands. And see, it might be that peace and quiet is what you really bow before. And so you avoid tough conversations in the sake of preserving the peace. Or maybe it is your desire for control and your self-importance that is so important. And so you're rocking boats all over the place that you really shouldn't rock because you bow before your sense of control. 
or maybe being the top in your field is the most important thing to you. And so good things and relationships that don't serve that goal have fallen by the wayside. And you see, if we won't allow Jesus to confront and reshape, even remove his rivals in our lives, then it might be that he's not really our Lord at all. And we find that we really do understand the mindset that wanted to crucify him in the first place. I want you poking and prodding in my life out of the way. Because the New Testament teaches we're all natural born enemies to God. We don't want him to be our king. Again, in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. The same words that Jesus opened his ministry with. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Look to Jesus. He is the true king. Instead of looking at these other things that will actually lead to destruction. So obviously our obedience in this passage matters. But then he also says, and be baptized. Don't miss this. The Christ in this passage, the risen Christ in this passage is so special. We've seen that death cannot hold him. We've seen that he is the king. And now we see that he can deal with our sins. Which means, of course, this Christ is not only the king, he is. He's also our priest, Do you realize Peter's saying you were dead wrong about him and now return to him? You were wrong about him, but he can save you. In fact, he's the only way that salvation is possible. If your sins will be atoned for, he must be the one to atone for your sins because your best efforts will not and cannot get you out of the hole that you've dug yourself in. And so we've got to hold two ideas together. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. He is your Lord and he is your priest. Because if Jesus is merely our priest but he's not our Lord, then we won't respect him. Not really. We won't follow him. We won't bow before him. We won't really love him because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But if he's not your priest, then you'll never really understand what it means that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation will always be about trying to do the right things. And you will live under a crushing burden of not only trying to prove to yourself, but proving to everybody else that you're not like the world. And when your number one focus is trying to separate yourself from the world, then you can't love the very people that God has called us to love. And so Peter is communicating two indispensable truths to us. How to live, repent, come back to Jesus, and be washed. He's giving us law and he's giving us gospel. And this is important. How do you know the difference? Gospel is always what has been done for you. 
The gospel certainly leads to obedience, but it can never be mistaken for obedience unless the obedience we're talking about is Jesus' obedience on our behalf. The gospel proclaims that grace is bigger than our sin. And what Peter's saying is, if you want to follow Jesus, you really can't do that unless you call him Lord and you return to him unless you repent from your sins, but neither can you follow him if you don't understand that you can't deal with your own sins. He has to deal with them for you. Our obedience matters, but salvation has to come entirely from outside to us. And that's why he says be baptized. Baptism is the sign and the seal of a gospel that proclaims to us that salvation comes from outside. It's someone else's work. It must be applied to us, and we can't achieve it for ourselves. He washes us because we cannot wash ourselves. Our baptisms proclaim to us the gospel. And this is why baptism isn't so much a picture of our commitment to God. It's a sign of God's commitment to us. Because when you see how grievous your sin against God is, and it is, it inevitably leads you to the end of yourself, which forces us to ask, what then shall we do? What can we do? I can remember getting a .33 one semester in college. That's not good. And um, I started to freak out when I realized that the implications of this, conversations that I was going to have to have with my parents and having to retake classes and the the expense and just being behind. And I started to freak out, oh, a .33. And so I went to my my advisor in a panic. I said, the semester is almost over and it looks like I'm going to get a .33. What can I do? And she said, well, you're too late. You're not going to do anything. You're going to get a .33. You're going to fail. And you know what's going to happen after that? You're going to be suspended. I could not, for the life of me, undo the damage that I had created for myself. I just had to sort of see it through. And that's where Peter's listeners are. We've dug ourselves in a hole we can't get out of. We're in trouble. What can we do? Have you ever been there? You see, because this passage reminds us you cannot see the good news for what it is until you see the bad news for what it is. And this is why Christians talk about being saved, being rescued. Because unless we are rescued, unless somebody saves us, we are stuck in deep, deep trouble. Unless we are saved, unless we are rescued, then we will face the eternal wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, is the answer. He is the good news. He is our hope for the forgiveness of our sin. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only does baptism picture for us a washing away of our sin, it pictures for us the giving of the Holy Spirit from outside of ourselves. There's two things we can be sure of from this passage. The one whom we sin against, 
you can be sure that he is both Lord and Christ and before him we stand guilty. And God promises to forgive us in his name. We are guilty before him and God promises in baptism to forgive us in his name. And baptism, it's not the thing, right? But it shows us where our assurance from God comes from. Because if we're going to have assurance in this life that we belong to God, it has to come from outside of ourselves. It has to come from the risen Christ. Baptism isn't the assurance, but what baptism signifies, salvation coming from outside to us, that is where our assurance must come from. God promises to wash away our sins in the name of Jesus. And if your sins are going to be dealt with, you can't deal with them, and I can't deal with them, but God can. So where does our assurance come from? Does it come from us Or does it come from outside of us, from God? God makes promises to us in baptism to do for us what we cannot do. And the only appropriate response when God makes a promise to us is to believe him. When God makes a promise and we believe that promise, we call that faith. This is the only way that Jesus' lordship over us won't crush us. Yes, this passage calls us to obey Jesus. There's no getting around that. And this this passage also promises the Holy Spirit to help us obey Jesus. What a gift. But we know, don't we, that no amount of obedience in this life, even obedience with divine help, can save us. No amount of obedience in this life, after the wreck that we've already made, can get us out of this hole which is why we need to hear the gospel again and again and again. Jesus must do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God saves sinners by grace through faith alone. And we felt the need to be reminded of this this week, haven't we? Haven't we sinned again and again a million times even this week? Maybe you yelled at your kids about something that really didn't matter. Kids, maybe you argued with your brother or your sister on purpose. You caused trouble on purpose. And you don't know why you did that. You can't really explain it, but you know you don't feel great about it. It cuts you to the heart. Or maybe you stirred up lust this week with a Google search. Or maybe you lied to somebody to save face. But the point is, all of us have sinned this week, and all of us have messed up this week. You have sinned, I have sinned, we are guilty before God, unless the gospel is true. Unless there is an assurance that comes from outside to us. The gospel proclaims that God saves people like you and me. And not just people who were sinners, not just people who used to be sinners, but people who still struggle with sin. People who are sinners today, the gospel is for. And when you believe God's promises, we call that faith. Faith gets us in the door of Christianity, but faith sustains us as we follow Jesus. That's our only hope, both for salvation and for our obedience, because a Lord who saves is a Lord we can follow. 
If we try to follow a Lord so that he might save us, it'll crush us. But a Lord who saves is a Lord we can follow. And that's why baptism calls us to repentance. But it's first and foremost a picture of unmerited grace applied to us. And so we really ought to be reminding ourselves and our children what our baptisms mean. God has promised to forgive us forever. And so when your sin cuts you to the heart again in new ways, you know it won't heal your heart? Saying you really should do better. And you should, and I should. And you know what else won't heal your heart? Saying God gives second chances. Because surely we know that we need so much more than a second chance. But do you know what will heal your heart? Hearing again and again and again, Jesus is gracious. Jesus is Lord to be sure, but he will forgive you based surely and purely on his grace and not your effort. Or as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Christian, that is what your baptism proclaims to you. That your assurance comes from the promises of God, the work of Christ, and not your obedience. And that will fuel your obedience. Parents, we ought to teach our children the commandments of God, as God's people have done for 4,000 years. We ought to teach them that their behavior before God matters that honoring their father and mother is a way of honoring God, but we can't forget the context that right before God says, honor your mom and dad, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. We ought to teach our children that those same words apply to them when we say, God has baptized you, he has promised to love you and forgive you, you belong to him and you have not earned it. And now you can return to him. You can repent. God has given us and promised us his Holy Spirit to help us to come back. But he's not waiting for us to be perfect to then give us a measure of him. Because I think when we see repent and be baptized, we learn that if we teach anybody that they have to obey for God to love them, That if you obey enough and then you are washed, that's how we teach legalism. The gospel always comes first. We follow the risen Christ because the risen Christ has promised us salvation, not according to our works, but by the very grace of God. So your deepest hope and your truest identity isn't what you do for God or for others though you are called to love God and love others. Your deepest hope and your truest identity is in what God has done for you in the gospel. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth. We need to remind our children of this truth every day, week in and week out, that the gospel defines us, but it also compels us. The news is simply that good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to live a perfect life for us.
to die a death that we deserve. Lord, that news sounds old and trite, and we pray that you would define our lives and revolve our lives around that truth, that you would assure us again that there's nothing we could do to earn your love, but still you have given it to us in Jesus. Would you give us the grace to believe this and the grace to repent, to serve the Lord, but also to know that he has served us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.